You're listening to the Formed Book Club from Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. We're back with the Formed Book Club. Uh, Vivian Dudrow here, Joseph Pierce, myself, Father Fessio. Uh, we just got started in Chapter 7 last session, uh, Where is the World Headed? We talked about the forgetfulness of the past, which is imposed in Marxist countries and simply accepted in materialist or you know Western countries. Uh, well, let's go to see what Carl Seurat has to say about progress and where the world seems to be headed right now. Uh, I have something on page 207 I'd like to comment on. Any name before that, Joseph? I have things on 207, but I'll, I, please go first. Oh, mine's at the bottom. Uh, he recalls Augustine's famous statement, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until the rest in you. And here's the principle. God is the very direction of all genuine progress. Speed and artificiality cannot lead us to God of themselves, I say. The man of the moment is not the man of God. He ends up no longer understanding his reason for being. So this idea of the, 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 the idol of progress, the moving forward, of always being in motion, it's the journey that counts, not the goal. Uh, that leads to a lack of understanding of what we really are, because God is our goal. Yeah, I would agree with that. Obviously, the whole idea of speed as being something which is in itself good. I mean, obviously, if you have to be in a hurry, fair enough. But for, for most of us, it's, it, we actually would be happier and closer to uh, an understanding of the truth if we actually took time um, and actually slowed down. And most of us are moving too quickly. So you know, this, this speed and, and artificiality, you know, when we've, we've actually abandoned uh, reality for virtual reality, that's not a step in the right direction. No, since disassociation with reality is the definition of mental illness, then the more uh, uh, departed you are from reality, the crazier you're going to be. Right. We have accretion and accretion and accretion of artificiality that's actually putting up a barrier between us and the real. Uh, and, and that's not a way to get to the truth. Well, I want to make a distinction here because everything which is is real. And so even even the virtual reality goggles or whatever, those are real. And even right now, people watching and seeing pixels on the screen, those are real pixels, you know. So it's not like uh, the real and the unreal, but it's like the real and our access to it in a more direct way. It's, it's why people really, if they can afford it, they prefer to have a wooden table or, you know, a wooden cabinet rather than a plastic one. Why is that? I mean, St. Greta Thunberg, notwithstanding, I mean, plastic serves a lot of, of uses, but, but wood is closer to, to the natural. You get a tree, you know it down, you got a table. Whereas plastic, you got to get the oil, you got to process it. It becomes much more distant from its origins. Or like in a church, you'd rather see stone than steel. Why is that? Nothing wrong with steel. Well, steel, you got to get out of an ore, you got to process it, you bent everything. And where stone, you hew it out, you cut it. But it, it, I mean, I'm not sure this is the only reason, but I feel that wood and stone in architecture give one a sense of being closer to nature. But David, this is one of those kinds of things you might want to object to because often you object to some of my, my fanciful theories. No, I think that's true. I think you are closer to nature. 
when you're closer to natural objects in their natural state. And there was a study done not too long ago showing a correlation between the amount of time people spend outdoors among trees and brooks and singing birds and their mental ah. health. And I think that makes perfect sense. That And I, Rotzinger said this in one of his books too, that part of what's causing the distance, the disconnect, if you will, between modern man and God is because modern man spends a good deal of his time in man-made artificial environments. Not artificial because they're not ultimately real, like you say, but distanced from these this natural in their state, natural state reality. We need that. Well, we need that to be grounded, no pun intended. And there's another aspect, too, is that I sometimes do watch these shows like these nature shows, where they're showing animals and flora and fauna in other countries. And I, I find that uh, informative and, you know, it makes me praise God more because of all the variety of his creation. But that's, they're transmitting to me something that's actually real out there. Whereas on a plane once in a while, because I don't go to many movies, but on a plane, they always seem to have these movies where, you know, the guys are jumping in the air off of buildings and they're flashing this and flashing that and things which no human being could ever do. You know, but making it seem like it's possible, uh, that's not real. I mean, that that's making us think that we can do things which are beyond our natural capacities in a way that's perverse. I mean, obviously, if I can hammer a nail, that's beyond my natural capacity. I can't do it with my hand, but I can do it with a hammer. But to have, you know, to think that I'm going to spin over and kick this guy and grab a table and go over the building and then jump through a flame and then have a car crash over here and come out. No, that's fantasy, man. Well, and, and uh, that, that's a nice segue into the Cardinal's discussion of transhumanism, right? Because isn't that what the movement of transhumanism is? Yeah. Right. To, uh, well, I think actually on page 208, uh, Cardinal Savoir actually answers a lot of the questions we've been asking uh, so far. Middle of the page there. In our world, man finds his place only insofar as he is useful in the vast spider web of robots. Man reduced to the role of a technological underling is no longer a man, strictly speaking, but a cold operator who long since has renounced the use of his free will. He has lost contact with his soul. Now, these are sweeping statements, and but certainly I think that the gist, you know, taking account what Father said earlier about not sort of being too sweeping and polemical. And this is sweeping and polemical, but the point is, it's, um, it's also at the, at the, at the, the core, it's, it's stating a profound truth, that we are now no longer actually in, in, in touch with reality because we're the servants of artificial intelligence. Uh, he also, I think, is partial remedy here, page 209 at the top, Paradoxically, progress could make us discover God. Progress ought to be the most propitious setting for a constant discovery of what God has willed. All scientific or technological discoveries tell about God's creation. A superficial science tells, turns people away from God, but a deep, wise science draws us close to him. And I, I've always had an interest in science as a former engineering student. I've kind of kept up with it, but as you get into the universe of astronomy, and you see more and more how the, the vastness of the universe and black holes and quasars and pulsars and 
all these other things which they keep continually discovering. I mean, it's a marvel. How can you not believe in God? On the other end, as you get down smaller and smaller into, into rel you know, relativity, which, by the way, <laughs> the theory of relativity of Einstein, the original name for it was the theory of invariance uh, because the speed of light is invariant, you know. Uh, they call it a set of relativity, namely that all speeds are relative to your position to someone else. But uh, it would be interesting to see what would have happened in the 20th century if it had been called the theory of invar invariance instead yeah. of the theory of relativity. Uh, but then you, and you get into quantum mechanics. And as Richard Feynman said, who's one of the great quantum physicists in the middle of the 20th century, a brilliant lecturer, and funny, he, had, he from New Jersey, he had this real heavy New Jersey accent, but he was a brilliant scientist. He said, I think I can say with certainty that no one understands quantum mechanics. That is to say, they've got the mathematical formulism. They can actually predict the results of experiments with precision that is unparalleled. But they don't understand why it works. Mm. You know, how can you really have superposition of two states that are opposite states at the same time? How can you have entanglement so that if one photon goes here and one photon goes there and you measure that one, you automatically know what this one has, even though you can't have information traveling faster than light. I mean, it's it's, it's marvelous. It's, 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 it's spectacular. But it should lead to God, not away from God. I think that's his point. And I, yeah, I agree. Even more basically on the level that I understand, because I don't know much about science, the physical sciences, uh, you know, the, the, the same thing can be said about infinity itself. What is infinity? Something which is infinite. You can have a mathematical formula for it and a mathematical symbol for it, but you yeah. can't get your head around it by definition. Right. I think the difference between these different sorts of science, you know, knowledge of just what is and the wonder of it all, that's one thing. It's when you apply that knowledge to exert power over reality that now you're into another thing. And that's, and that's where you'd think nature would lead to the discovery of the natural law, for example, because you're studying the nature of things, and so it would right. make sense. But if I can say, ah, but with this knowledge, I now have power to undo that nature, to make that nature into something I want it to be, now you can see that's where the breach occurs and where science, that sort of science, leads man away from God. And who is the historical figure who is the turning point? Francis Bacon. Knowledge is power. We don't learn just to find out the way things are. We learn to have power over changing things according to our will. Right. You know? and, and to have... The power, for example, to do microsurgery and all these amazing oh gosh, things yeah. that we can do, that's a beautiful thing. But if, if we aren't also developing our consciences along with the development of our technologies, then what's the difference between that and now implanting things in the brain that are now going to turn you into a part robot or whatever? I mean, where are the moral criteria going to come from? as we go further and further down this road, if we don't have the humility to uh, form our consciences along something other than just our own whim. Yes, or even if it's more than a whim, it can be a will, that is a, a desire, to think that we can improve on the plan that God has 
you know, created in us uh, by somehow transcending that in a transhuman way. I'm, I'm sorry, it's not. I mean, you but know, this this thing. We have a lot of brilliant people and scientists that are doing these things. You're talking about these things, but you know something? It goes back to the very first words of Genesis. You know, where the serpent, the tempter. She says, oh, well, you said told not to do that. Oh, no, no. You do that, you'll be like gods. Right. That's, oh, really? And he says this over and over again. The trick is, is, is how do we even get this discussion to take place, right? Where right now, if you try to bring an ontological view, a religious view, metaphysical view to the table, well, that's your opinion, this is what relativism has done. Joseph, you talk about this a lot. This is what relativism, that's just your opinion. That's irrelevant. We just need the hard data, the facts, the quantities of things. That's all we want uh, to discuss. But you're not going to find whether or not what you're doing is right and good for others if uh, you won't allow these other things into the conversation. Well, that's the problem. If the progress, I mean, progress properly understood is, is the pursuit of wisdom. You know, uh, and that, and making progress towards that through virtue—that's what progress is. But when progress is just a servant of utilitarianism and power, then obviously the, all the scientific discoveries we make are not going to be progressive, but regressive. They're actually going to lead to more and more destructive ways of, of destroying ourselves and our culture and our society. And that's what we find ourselves today. And that's what this whole chapter is about. Uh... I want to bring up uh, what I think will be a controversial comment on page 212, but uh, there may be something prior to that. No, go right ahead. I've got 217 now, so fire okay. away. The question is, is our era living in present moment? Well, of course, an eternal present. Well, we're always living in an eternal present in a sense, but living in a present moment that we wish could be endless manifests a rejection of the things of eternity. The present becomes superabundant and God invisible. Man seeks more and more to escape into alternate realities. And here's where it gets very concrete. I'm struck by all the persons who spend endless time with their mobile telephone, absorbed by images, lights, ghosts. The eternal present is an eternal illusion, a little prison cell. A mobile phone constantly transports us outside of ourselves. It cuts us off from any interior life. It gives us a sense of always being traveling across continents, allowing us to be in contact with everybody. In reality, reality, he says, it empties us of our interior life and puts us down in the world of ephemeral things. A mobile phone makes us lose real contact. It projects us toward what is far off and inaccessible. It gives us the impression of generating space and time, of being gods and capable of communicating without being stopped by any obstacle. These insane, no, excuse me, these instant communication devices steal silence, destroy the riches of solitude, and trample on intimacy. It often happens that they snatch us away from our loving, loving life with God to expose us to the periphery, to what is external to us in the midst of the world. Now, there's a lot there, of course, and I think he probably has a mobile phone. I've not tried to call him, but... Uh, and I've got a mobile, you have a mobile phone, right? Yes, Joseph, I do. you've got one, right? I do have one, I, I must confess, yes. Okay. So, I'm not changed to it, though, uh, uh, but hopefully. What I do we say, say, what do we say, say then to call this a Is this a, is this a, a, a Luddite uh, 
criticism of a legitimate technological improvement or what? I think it's like anything. It can be used for good, but it can also become uh, a compulsion. You know, if you're always on your phone, always uh, that's your primary thing you're looking at and using all the day long, rather than being a helpful tool of just replacing the phone you had before, only now uh, it might have some other features on it, if it's actually becoming an extension of yourself, right? And, and, and sucking all your time and attention, every beep, every... Uh, I, I think he's pointing to what certainly can happen to people, and we know it does happen to people, especially I, I, I younger think, think, people. It's a further temptation towards narcissism. Um, and when, when you're living in a narcissistic culture, having further temptations towards narcissism is not helpful. And most people are actually addicted to looking at their phones now. Um, and that, that's the problem with it. As with all things, it's not the device itself, it's what we do with it. But the point is, if we live in a narcissistic culture, a device which makes it more easy to be narcissistic is going to be used in that way. And, and that's, the, that's, that's the problem with them. Okay, well, here's the paradox, because he says, as I already quoted, a mobile phone constantly transports us, transports us outside of ourselves, which you think might be a good thing and kind of anti-narcissistic, right? To be transported outside of yourself. But you're being transported outside of yourself in order to project yourself, that self that you are creating for yourself. I mean, this is what they're saying, the studies on, on children and young people, where there's all this burden now for them to create a self. And the way oh. they create that self, and again, he talked earlier in the book, we've gone over this many times, the, the ability to receive the givenness of your life, the givenness of reality. Instead, the burden is on you to construct yourself, to construct your reality. And the only way you validate that you've done it is by projecting it out there and have other people like it or other people respond to it or other people bleep it or something. So now people are caught in this, uh, I don't have an identity unless I'm interacting uh, mm -hmm. with all of these people out there, including complete strangers, and projecting myself onto their screens and so on. And then there's the problem with, well, they're likewise projecting themselves onto your screens, and now you're spending all this time on your Facebook and whatnot comparing yourself with their selves. Am I good enough? Am I, do I have as many friends? Do I get as many likes? Do I, do I uh, take as many vacations to exotic places? I mean, it, it really is a trap. And what the people it's harming most are young people who are still very formative and, and they don't know who they are. And, and we, the adults in their lives, are supposed to be helping them uh, develop and grow into the people God intended them to be. But this thing is just becoming this so, tube down the drain. <laughs> okay, so I'm wondering what would be the ways of approaching... Let's say take the cell phone or the smartphone uh, with principles that would allow you to live a Christian life and enjoy your life uh, and, and a social life that would not be uh, harmed by this use. The first thing I would say is insofar as you are addicted to the phone, insofar as if you go out for two hours without it, you feel lost. At that point, you have to, first of all, do what someone who's an alcoholic does yes. and admit you have a problem uh, and actually learn to do without it. 
um, and only then come back to it when you are able to use it prudently and temperately. In other words, that the use of it has to be subject to virtue like everything else. And, and if that's actually an obstacle to virtue, because it's, we're addicted to it, we have to move away from it. And that's hard for people because obviously no addict, first of all, wants to be told that they're an, an addict. And secondly, have to, to do something about it. Right. And many people don't know they're addicts until the phone is taken away somehow. They lose it or there was a, a, a study where they took the phones away from these young people and to see what the effects would be. And sure enough, they were showing withdrawal-like symptoms. Uh, uh, and, and I think for some of them, they themselves did not realize how addicted they were. But every addiction is a loss of freedom. And so, and so we know that our human dignity lies with, with having the freedom to love and do good and so on. So any loss of freedom is a loss of your dignity. And so we're actually doing people a favor by strongly exhorting them to really uh, examine this in their lives. If you can't say no to something, you're not really free to say yes. That's what John Paul II said. And right. so do that experiment. Put your phone in a drawer and try to live without it for a day. And if you just start getting the jitters. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I, mean, it's a bet there are far more people out there, including very good Catholics, who find it much easier to give up alcohol for Lent than to give up their mobile device. Yes, I think you're right. Well, but part of it is that we, because it has replaced a landline for most people. I mean, it is your contact with the doctor or with the work you're doing. And there's some things which you, you really can't give up building a mobile phone because that's not how we do business. Right. It's like giving up email. So when Lent comes, decide to use it as a phone, not as all the other things you can do with it. Okay. Or how about on Sundays, shutting off your phone and your computer and spending that day, uh, well, first of all, if we're Catholics, we go to Mass, but... Spending that day with your families, go out for a walk in nature. If it's rainy outside, do a puzzle. Uh, read, and don't read. take a picture of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, and don't take read books. There's so many other things you could do once that space were opened up to do it. And so I would say just an easy way to start is on Sundays, turn off this stuff. Amen. Oh, You'll be happier. You'll be happier. And, and, and I think, too, another sign is... Uh, that, you know, you're having a conversation or a table, you know, and somebody's phone rings, they stop picking up. Wait, why does that person have a right to interrupt this conversation? I'm talking to you, right? Right. You know? Yeah. And, and so this is another thing families can do. No devices at the dinner table. No devices on in your bedroom when you go to bed at night. They're saying that these children have their phones on right there by the pillow. And all night long, they're responding to beeps and this and that. No, parents... Take those phones away from your children when they go to bed at night. Well, that's another thing. If you have to have it beep every time something comes, you, you know, that's the addiction. I, what, what is it? I, I, need, I need to know that. And no. they've shown that it's like a uh, dopamine effect or whatever, you know, that feel-good emotion that you get going on a roller coaster or doing any number of things actually gets stimulated when that beep goes off when someone is addicted to this. So, yes, there's all kinds of things you can do to to curb this, but it's to regain your freedom. This is not to take away your freedom. This is to regain your freedom, the freedom we've lost to these machines. So you, you have to move towards the situation where 
the phone is your slave. You're not the phone's slave. Yes. It, 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 it's, a, it's a device. It, we, we can use it for our help others and to live a better life. That's good. Uh, but if we become dominated by it, well, then we're dominated by a machine. Right. Not, not good. Huh. Well, I guess we lost all our, all our viewers now, huh? <laughs> and especially all the ones that are yet lower, younger than 60. Watching on their mobile devices anyway. Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't know. I, I, I've seen, I've seen uh, uh, headlines on people who've done these studies saying they were so glad they did, that they felt happier and more peace of mind when they took time away. And so I, I think we're going to be hitting a nerve that a lot of people are experiencing. And I, I don't, and if they are offended, well, oh, well. And, but this is, uh, at least so far, it's because we're all addictive. I mean, whether it's playing golf or, or watching sports or, you know, we, we, things we find enjoyable, we yes, want right. to keep doing, you know. Uh, so we, with, with alcohol, we know that that can really lead to life-destructive, visibly life-destructive effects. You know, at some point, of course, reaches bottom they got to try and get off it. It's painful, but they know they fit the bottom. Uh, seems to me that these devices are more insidious because it's not, you know, you're not directly beating your wife because of it, you know, or uh, falling off you know, in a car crash. Well, you might be in a car crash because you're trying to tweet while you're on the road. Right. But, well, but, in fact, that is happening. They're it, saying that using these devices while driving is more dangerous than driving under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. So, but, but you know, we don't want to be consequentialists. We don't want to say that the only way we can tell an action is good or bad is by some kind of effect or result. We ought to be able to look at the action itself and okay, say, okay. something's not right about that. Something's not right that we're all eating dinner together and, and you're constantly checking your phone. Or you're, you're a child who needs a good night's sleep to go to school the next day, and you've got your phone on all night long by your pillow and not getting a good night's sleep. We can just look at that right there and say, something's out of whack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Something's out of whack, <laughs> and we need to do something about it before we suffer long-term deleterious effects. Okay. Um, that was the last thing I had in Chapter 7. Anything else in Chapter 7, which is yeah, where page 217 and it's actually that's very, chapter eight is that chapter eight yeah believe me in my book oh, yeah. anyway okay yeah sorry i beg your pardon all right and well, correct that's uh, the, the, that's if there's nothing else on chapter seven why don't we call it there uh, okay and wish everyone a merry christmas indeed and a blessed new year and feast of the method of the motherhood of mary uh, because anything? we're going to take a break, right? Oh, that's Don't right. We, need to tell oh, yeah. our... we are going to take a break uh, the week after Christmas. And so we'll be back uh, in the... What, when will we be back, Joseph? So we're basically going to not be doing a session on New Year's Eve um, next, next Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, which will be January the 7th, we'll be back. All right. See you all on January 7th. Thanks for joining us. To receive email updates, study questions, and free access to our online forum, just visit formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Thanks for joining us.